America, my name is Ahimeo Se Frimpong. I come to you live every Thursday afternoon. I'm going to start doing a special series where I get candidates and we talk about the issues. I want candidates who other people uh, don't interview and don't get their side as much as they should. And we're going to talk about why that's the case uh, with this next candidate. And um, I want candidates, congressional candidates. We're going to talk. We're going to hash out the public problems with our democracies and what we can do to make our democracy a little bit more robust. Um, because would you believe or not, some of these congressional members have not actually sat for a job interview or a debate or any sort of public accountability measures for sometimes decades. And I don't know how long you guys go without a job interview or some sort of job uh, assessment, but I think we need to find ways to hold candidates accountable and they've gotten very good and very crafty at not only skirting public accountability, but actually profiting off of how they skirt account uh, public accountability. And so with that, I have a candidate from the 12th district in California, and he's running for... It's the 11th now after the redistricting. Oh, it's the 11th. Okay. We moved. lost a seat in the latest round in California. Oh, population's gone down? No, just relative population in other states have increased. Okay. Well, uh, the 11th seat in California, and uh, it's uh, the current congressperson is Nancy Pelosi. You might have heard of her. She's sometimes in the papers. And he's run before, but he, as a responsible candidate, just wanted to actually participate in democracy and vie for office the way we're supposed to be able to in a functioning democracy. And he called for a debate. And when you called initially called for the debate with Nancy Pelosi as a challenger in the Democratic primary, because let me be clear, you are a Democrat, right? I am running as a Democrat in the one You're running as a Democrat. You put your name on the ballot as a Democrat. You got the required signatures and or put down the money to be a challenger uh, in the Democratic primary. You did what you were supposed to do. OK, and then afterwards, you approached her campaign to schedule a debate because you just wanted a public airing of the ideas. And how are you received? We never received a response from Pelosi. She's never said my name. It's frankly even worse than you describe because I didn't just seek to debate her as a primary challenger. I won the primary. We have a top two primary system in California. So I was her general election challenger. And I wasn't the only one asking for debate. Multiple journalists asked her to debate. And it wasn't just the fact that a 30-year incumbent refused to show up for the job interview, as you described, taking for granted her entitlement to the seat. Uh, but the very week after the San Francisco Chronicle published a story, front page, above the fold, the headline was Pelosi ignoring calls for a debate, then emerges the smear campaign orchestrated by her party patronage network to basically subvert the election, mislead voters, and you know, conduct a psychological operation, essentially. And so you have this pattern of incumbents ducking debates, promoting disinformation, and you know the layers of corruption here compound the aspiration to put her daughter in her seat if she is allowed to retire on her own terms is a whole further subversion of democracy that we haven't even talked about yet. But the, the attacks on democracy by the leaders of the Democratic Party are among the things that forced me to run for office as a public interest advocate who's been making appeals and requests and demands of policymakers for two decades and witnessing their repeated, continuing and ongoing allegiance to Wall Street and Washington before we, the people of the United States and my neighbors here in San Francisco. Right. And so there's a lot at stake in ducking these debates. And people, if you don't know, you don't really know what a person's for until you know what why they're for it. 
right? So you think you have their positions when you just have like the superficial yay or nay, but until you know their reasons, you don't really know what they're for and what they're willing to compromise. And this I think is, uh, was, was made clear with Congresswoman Pelosi in December when she said, well, she doesn't believe in a ban for private stock trading. She thinks uh, Congress people should be able to individually promote stocks. And then you look at the numbers and you see that Congress people seem to do very well in the market. They beat the market. Not a lot of people do, but Congress people do, and especially her family. And so that's a little bit, that's a little bit where, like it's a little bit dubious, right? But that's enough. That's not damning yet, right? So just because she happens to play the market and beat the market doesn't mean that her position is necessarily graft or ignorance. She could actually have a well-founded position. I don't agree. Like my knee jerk was not to agree with her position, but like I was willing to hear her arguments for it. But then she gave her arguments for it in a in a very but like a very telling moment. Somehow she got in a press conference with a journalist who was doing his job, and the journalist asked her, "Why do you why do you think invest like um, Congress people should be able to make individual investments?" And Pelosi said, "Well, it's a free market society, and Congress people should be able to participate in a free market society." And to which I thought that is ridiculous. <laughs> that is ridiculous. So, like, if and, and Americans know this in some level that if you're the boxing commissioner, you shouldn't be betting on fights, right? And like, we're of the same age where we saw Pete Rose get pinched for betting on baseball games. That wasn't about like people shouldn't be able to bet on baseball games, but right. baseball games are manufactured activities, and the people who manufacture them shouldn't also bet on them. <laughs> right, it's like shouldn't get rich. All conflict of interest there. So that showed to me like she doesn't understand. Well, I think she does understand, but it's like she thinks we're stupid insofar as we don't understand how rigged games work. And Americans might not be the most sophisticated citizenry in the in the history of the world, but we know rigging and betting. Right, like we know, we this is something. This is a kind of logic that we understand. And so, if you think that markets are just kind of these natural entities that just kind of emerge magically and everyone kind of orients themselves to it the same, this might make sense. But if you actually understand marketing, you know that they're manufactured. We have antitrust laws. We have. We need Congress people. We need Congress people to actually have private meetings with large producers in order to manage the market and to have asymmetrical information in order to manage the market. So we need her to be an insider. So you don't get to both be an insider or a trader because you put those together and you become an insider trader, right? So in order for the market to work, we need her to be an insider. And if you're an insider, you don't always, you don't also get to, to, to bet on the market. Like that's the crime. And it's really, it's unfortunate because then I did a little bit of research on this and it turns out that the, the, the football, the national football league has the most rigorous uh, laws against this because the football players aren't allowed to bet on anything. They can't bet on like Olympic ice dancing, right? <laughs> they can't bet on anything. Okay, no, they don't. They like that. The idea is that professional and the NFL is more restrictive than other sports leagues. Yeah, it's more restrictive than other sports huh. leagues. Okay. Right. So, and then, like, even like the the bankers in New York, you probably know that the bankers can't like individually trade. Oh um, yeah, that's because, a big deal, and they're like monitored, they're surveilled by their so companies to make sure that they don't break those standards. While yeah. members of Congress have a mere disclosure standard with no functional restraint at all. Can I say a couple <laughs> things? Because there's so many things you've raised, I'm like itching to, and I'm going to lose it if I don't. Hit yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's hear what's up. 
All right. So first, I'm kind of going to, I would say with all respect, again, you're being too charitable. <laughs> and here's a couple ways why. Yeah. So first, you know, everybody's outraged by the corruption of the marketplace by congressional insider trading. The first thing to note here is that it was never okay and it's been going on for decades. The second thing to note is that that's just the tip of the iceberg. The corruption of the marketplace is bad enough. I'm more concerned about the corporate corruption of Congress that it invites, encourages, and structurally entrenches. Because when you have policymakers who are making decisions about how to do things like regulate the marketplace, whose interests are at heart? Is it the public's? Is it the Constitution's? Is it their family's portfolios? And when they duck debates, who knows? We, know. we have no idea. You said before that there's, and I, this was brilliant. You drove me to gesticulate, you know, like <laughs> what they think we're stupid. And here's the problem. This is the really tragic irony of contemporary democracy in the United States is that with respect to journalists and at least editors, by and large, they're right. They play them like fiddles. And, and I'm going to go back to now the beginning of your question when you were talking about how it's important to know why people believe what they believe and what positions they'll take when pressed in negotiation. I, I certainly agree with that, but I go even further. We take for granted in structuring the question that way that we actually know what the positions are. But the voters in San Francisco have no idea what Nancy Pelosi's positions have been. I mean, this is someone who funded Trump's concentration camps, slow walked impeachment process that's processes that she affirmatively kneecapped, expanded his surveillance authorities, expanded his corporate trade authority, has supported every war for profit for the last generation, opposes student debt relief, blocks Medicare for all, impedes climate change, keeps its key proponents off of critical congressional committees, wields control over the House of Representatives like a mob boss, and has been fantastically profiting off it, growing ridiculously wealthy. She's worth over $200 million. She spent 34 years filling her pockets at the public's expense. And San Franciscans, by and large, think because the press constructs her as this, they think of her as some sort of lion of the left. So and you think that she keeps people- Nobody knows her positions here. That's part so of the you, information. You're saying that this is by design. She keeps people ignorant about what she really thinks by design and has structured the media environment to help her design. This isn't- um, I would stop a little short of that and go further than it. I would say I go further than it and say it's by design in part of the ducking debates. That's right. the strategy. It's part of the wool, pulling the wool over the eyes of the public. I would stop shorter of that and saying I don't think that she's constructing the media environment. I think the media environment is it's corporatized. It's consolidated. It puts access before its adversarial ethos and ethics. You know, there is much journalism is a business now, much more than it is a constitutional function as we might hope it would be. And if it were a constitutional function, voters would know what the positions are. But nobody in San Francisco realizes that Nancy Pelosi is a pro-military industrial complex authoritarian with a history of undermining human rights. And again, ducking debates to fill her own pockets while smearing her opponents. It's like the layers of corruption that surround her go completely unobserved because the press has fallen apart at the seams. And, you know, some of it, I don't want to blame journalists unfairly because some of it is economic, right? The collapse of news bureaus from the local level to Washington, just particularly the way the internet undermined classified advertising. I mean, these are structural problems beyond anyone's design. So I don't want to artificially impute the sort of like 
puppeteer strings, but you know the 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 fate of the landscape as it has emerged is something certainly the, the corporate establishment has learned to game very effectively to insulate itself and ultimately capital from democratic challenges. And you know, I think there's a tendency on the left to construct the challenge between capital and labor as being one that only implicates us. But in the in an era of climate crisis, the future of life on this planet depends on labor overcoming capital and, and labor and a multiracial coalition of Americans, particularly because people in other countries can't restrain our military industrial complex, which is the thing running humanity off of a cliff. And it's insulated particularly by the co-optation of the party that falsely claims to stand for labor interests. Nancy Pelosi, I want to take this one layer further because this is going get, to get back down to brass tacks. How do we crack this corruption? We've observed it. And I'm eager both to offer an alternative to the voters in San Francisco and Americans who want to see someone else in the leadership position, not me, but just someone who's not her. That's the biggest value I, I represent and offer at the moment. But the point here I want to get at, oh, damn it, I lost it. Uh, it'll come to me. But there, there's a, oh, how to fix this. Democracy in the public requires journalists showing up for work. And I do want to shout out the journalists who have asked her for a debate. At the same time, there are other opportunities for democracy. And here I want to get sharp and point the lens at labor unions. Okay. Labor unions can insist on debates yes. or at least offer their rank and file op opportunities to, I don't know, maybe ask questions or inform the endorsement decisions. SEIU, Service Employees International Union, two weeks ago endorsed Nancy Pelosi without a debate, without a vote to its rank and file. Several of its rank and file members who actually understand politics enough to recognize the corruption both of the process within their union and the substance of their own political representation in you know a union representing low-wage workers being co-opted by an oligarch and they reached out to us and said we want to get you in the meeting where the union leadership's going to announce this endorsement so they put me in this meeting and you know obviously the leadership wouldn't let me speak but i put my chat and my, you know, a comment in the chat about Pelosi's history, filling her pockets at the public's expense and the expense of SEIU members, you know, repeatedly engineering tax breaks for the wealthy while freezing the minimum wage for a decade, two decades, uh, if we don't stop this, right, and, and, and overcome the weight of capital. And, and it was fascinating, the response of the leadership was to disable the chat, though my comment was already in, so they couldn't like take it down. And I got a screen cap of the faces of the people, including Nancy Pelosi, as they were reading it. And it was priceless. It's on social media. I'll share the link with you maybe after the interview. But like unions can at least hold the standard within them that we are disappointed in our public institutions failing. And any union that makes endorsements of congressional candidates without giving its rank and file a chance to participate and vote and ask questions is doing a disservice not only to democracy, but its rank and file. And having stood for the rank and file when so many le union leaders have chosen not to, I am very happy to continue doing that. And this is a time when, frankly, we need all of the institutions to show up and unions failing to show up in this way is one of the things enabling corporate incumbents to duck accountability and pull the wool again over the eyes of the public. So the general critique is going to be that when this faction of leadership isn't publicly accountable, to their rank and file members. If a if it's a union, that means the people on the shop floor. If it's a democracy, that means a citizen. Then that elite sec uh, faction becomes a class onto itself over and against the rank and file and over and against 
um, the citizenry, which means that like Pelosi and her crew and the union leadership and their crew are working together and the rank and file and the citizenry are locked out. That's right? exactly and what it's So about. like, this is going to be, and then it's just a matter of theater when then the votes just become a matter of theater because like they haven't, the media hasn't mediated. So the second thing I want to say is that's the media's job to mediate the relationship between the citizenry and the uh, the elected representative to mediate the the relationship between the rank and file and the union leadership. That's why we need this public. That's why we need newsletters. That's why we need to know why people, um, yeah, why people believe what they believe. Because if you don't know why they believe what they believe, you don't really know what they believe. And um, so, like this problem is like metastasized into like all of our big institutions. We're a big advanced economy. So we we're gonna have big institutions. So we need to get clear about what big institutions need to function constitutionally right. to actually sustain self-determination for the people. And I, I like maybe the founders didn't have this in mind. The founders didn't have a lot in mind when they wrote the constitution. Um, and I was talking to Shahid before uh, about how this is kind of like the Articles of Confederation. People, if you don't know at home, when we first overthrew uh, the British, we came up with a bunch of Articles of Confederation. It didn't really work because they didn't deal with interstate, interstate trade. We thought they would work, but it couldn't actually sustain democracy because it didn't deal with interstate trade and money and all of these other issues. And so we had to go back again and kind of rethink what democracy needs at this scale in order to function. Now, as it stands, I think we have a democratic culture and a constitution that can't actually deal with the fact of entrenched power. Right. And we need to like think through, maybe with a constitutional amendment or two. I mean, if you're going to be a, a congressman, like these are the kinds of terms you need to think in terms of. Right. Like, what do we think, what do we need, both culturally and constitutionally, to make sure that we can we can actually fulfill the promise of being a robust democracy and not just be kind of like an underdeveloped one in the same way that the Articles of Constitution were just an underdeveloped form of the United States? I think that's a super critical question. I don't want to hit it in a couple layers. There are constitutional principles I'd love to see baked into the sauce. Amendments are one way to do that. Jurisprudence is another. There's structural, there are statutory restrictions that can have structural impact. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> um, I'm going to rattle off a few and then try to dive into them. I might lose track of some of the ones I raised, so feel free to bring them up later. But insider trading is obviously one. Campaign finance is another. Post-electoral lobbying by former policymakers ah, is another. Okay. The revolving door. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Traditional-like tenure is a key locus of entrenchment, and that can be fixed through statute. It has a constitutional dimension because it will end up being a constitutional fight. But if we just politicize it enough to force the court to try to articulate in the public why they get life tenure, we end up winning that fight. The court can't withstand public pressure when it implicates its own legitimacy. And like that's kind of what we're seeing at the moment. Well, this is part of, the, this is part of why I'm running, because I've seen Pelosi and Feinstein pave the way for right-wing justices to join the Supreme Court. So part of why I'm running is as an accountability measure to try to respond to that. So you know, the, the opportunity for accountability ultimately rests with the voters. And I've often said, we get the democracy that we're bold enough to embrace. And we'll see you know, whether voters are independent enough to see through the ruse of this corporate smoke and mirrors that is constructed to recognize hey, what is ultimately at stake here. Go ahead. About one of the points you mentioned, can you talk a little bit about the post-election, I don't know, money grab? 
Yes. What happens if you're Kristen Sinema and you lose your next election? I was going to start with her actually as a case I, I, study. She's so, right. like a perfect because she's like she a, is a perfect example. Yeah. So many people wonder how can a Democratic senator get away with just blatantly ignoring her constituents, her party, every principle she's ever supposedly stood for, and the public pressure, the combined public pressure of the national outrage over basically sinking any and more or less every progressive inclination of the Biden administration, <laughs> right? I mean, there was all this most progressive administration ever, which is just absolutely ridiculous in right. retrospect at this point, particularly because the Senate, enabled by people like Manchin and Cinema, kneecapped any even nod to progressive interests coming out. So what does she get out of it? What she gets out of it is a very lucrative career. Members of Congress, particularly, and former senators routinely get hired by Washington, D.C. law firms. Washington, D.C. law firms that serve corporate clients. People wonder, for instance, how do repeated tax breaks for the wealthy happen? How do things like the deregulation of industries happen that then set up things like the 2008 financial crisis? Well, the way they happen is fancy Washington, D.C. law firms like the one that, you know, that there are so many, but I'm thinking particularly of the one, for instance, that put Stephen Donziger uh, in, in home detention. Fancy DC law firms that I might have been a New York firm now that I think about it. But the point here is that law firms serving corporate clients write laws serving their corporate clients that they then bring to members of Congress. And often those members of Congress are getting pitched by their former colleagues and their former colleagues can make much more money working for a DC law firm than you ever do working in Congress. Now, I want to compare this to congressional insider trading, which is the same problem, but in some respects, even worse. In both cases, we are talking about, and this the founders did see, they did write a clause in the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, to prohibit self-enrichment at public expense. And what we're ultimately talking about here is unconstitutional violations of the Emoluments Clause, both by sitting members of Congress and by former policymakers. Former policymakers in this revol revolving door cash cow career track that we're describing, and current policymakers by inflating or just putting their stock portfolios before the interests of we, the people of the United States and their constituents. In, but in neither case is there an enforcement mechanism for this unconstitutional behavior to be addressed. And, and to be honest, even exposed. You, I love how you framed the controversy around congressional insider trading. It, it did, in fact, emerge because a rare journalist showed up for work and asked a question that has, frankly, been obvious for decades. I've been pounding it for years. Why are we letting these people grow wealthy at our expense? when we are the ones who supposedly hire them in the election process? And how do they get away with ducking debates for 34 years while filling their pockets doing it? It is frankly preposterous when correctly understood. I feel like people in the body politic understand the illegitimacy, but they don't understand just how bad it is. And, and often I think it leads to resignation where we frankly need outrage and engagement. And people, everyone should be outraged right now. And there are so many people that are abdicating electoral politics because they don't see any hope in it. Whether you see hope or not, it is coming for you and it will drive you and everyone off a climate cliff or and or into an authoritarian abyss if we don't stop it first. And you know, I see the train of our civilization about, I mean, running as we speak has been running off a broken bridge. And, mm -hmm. and we need people to build the bridge. And, and I think these kinds of constitutional, structural, statutory mechanisms that you were describing are the bridge to enable our system to better respond to the concerns of the future. Just to give another example of this, we knew heading into the pandemic that for-profit healthcare is a racket. There was no pretense that we respect human rights in this country, right? So then how is it that we would be surprised that when the global pandemic presents itself, we would suffer worse 
results than any country on the planet. Why would it surprise us when disinformation flourishes in an environment where people can't even get to a doctor if they need one? And so the trust in medical institutions declines such that we then become vulnerable to demagoguery and foolishness. Yeah, you know, that's actually, this is going to get to a good point because I do like the idea that once, once public, once our leaders show themselves to be unaccountable and kind of flippant, with calls for accountability, then people are alienated from their institutions. And when people start getting alienated from their institutions, all sorts of really bad externalities start emerging yes. because you're alienated from your hospital, like all of you're alienated from your schools. Like once, once our institutions start being like, not about us and our will through them, but start being over and above and controlling us and we pull away from them in order to sustain like ourselves, then we can't function um, because we need these institutions in order to function. And so the people then get alienated from the medical system. They get alienated from the legal system. They get alienated from the education system. And the political Almost. process. What's up? And the political process. It's sort of like a vicious democracy destroying loop. Right. And that's all. And the root of that is the inability of like our titular leadership to submit themselves to like public accountability. And well transparency. Said. Yes. So with public accountability and transparency, a lot of these like general institutional failures can be healed and addressed responsibly. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And the role of the press here and the role of unions, you know, I, and I think people, there's so many points in the process to observe dysfunction at, and you know, I want to bring it back to the individual level, because I think you raised this, how so many people in the face of the madness of the machine, and the seeming hopelessness of the future, throw their hands up in the air and just, you know, I've got to sustain myself. I had an exchange today with a former podcaster who made the point that uh, their family had encouraged them to give up podcasting because it was destroying their mental health. And they said, I don't think politics is good for me. And I said, I hear you. And I totally see where you're at and mad respect and much love to you and all the best to you and your family. And it pained me to see someone with an insightful voice, someone who saw through the smoke in the mirrors, someone who was driven to speak out about it just by the sheer psychological, emotional weight of having to deal with it, being forced out of it. I am no stranger to that. I mean, I was dragged in the international press for being a supposed predator falsely by political critics who were promoting their own careers and, and willing to promote racist lies to insulate this corporate oligarchy that we're describing. And I was under a bus for a year before a whistleblower was finally able to expose what the San Francisco Bayview described as a civic lynching orchestrated by Pelosi's party patronage network. And so just to like step back and put this all in context, we're talking about dynastic oligarchs holding seats for decades, ducking debates, filling their pockets, constructing racist and Islamophobic smears of their opponents to avoid the accountability that we're talking about being so critical, right? To maintain any pretense of democracy. And then trying to set up, in Pelosi's case, her daughter, to then wield the dynasty for another generation. And yeah, I want to I mean, you're kind of bearing the lead. People don't know Pelosi's dad was a congressperson too in a mayor, correctly? Her so brother, her dad was a dad, mayor. What? Her dad was the mayor of Baltimore. Her brother served in Congress. Okay. I, but, but yeah, you're on it. Yeah. Yeah. So like he's talking about dynasty with a big D, right? So like we're actually there are 300 million people in America, right? Like, so everyone should kind of have a chance at these um these positions without having the same last name and that's again i'd say you might be being too charitable in that her dynasty not only includes her parents or her father and her brother 
Her daughter, her nephew is the governor of California. That's Gavin Newsom. And you have to understand while they're not uh, blood or marriage related, Kamala Harris being the vice president of the United States is absolutely part of Pelosi's political legacy. There's no question about that. I mean, if you think about her route to the to being named Biden's running mate and you know Biden's path to the White House in itself through the nomination, a lot of that reflects Pelosi's influence. So her political legacy is much bigger even than her family. And and I, as long as we're on that, I should just note that San Francisco, a lot of people I think around the country might wonder why San Francisco uh, might be relevant to them or why this seat might be relevant to them. She's not only the Speaker of the House, but our city has a heavier footprint in Washington particularly on a per capita basis than any city in the country by far. And I just want to sketch this out. Our voices in DC include the Speaker of the House, who unilaterally basically controls a chamber of Congress, one of the three branches of government, the Vice President of the United States, who's second in command of the second of, of you know, another branch of Congress, plus a senior US Senator in Dianne Feinstein. And we sent the governor of this, the most populous and prosperous state to the state capital. This is a city of under a million people. It's not a metropolis. There are many cities in the United States way bigger than San Francisco, and none of them have anything like the influence that our city has. But let's it gets worse than that. This is the most progressive city in the country, and you'd have no idea from looking at our voices in Washington because every single one of them is a voice favoring Wall Street and Pentagon interests before any of the values that unite this city. And if San Francisco knew that, we might make better choices, but this leads us back to the journalists and the labor unions that are basically falling asleep on the job by not asking the kinds of critical questions that we did hear from you know, business insider journalists who drove this controversy about insider trading, that we did hear from the labor union rank and file members who dragged us into that meeting to offer the critique that the leadership wanted to suppress. This is a time when individuals need to step forward. And I understand the psycho-emotional toll that it takes. I aged 10 years in the last two. And this is what we are here for. This is this is the unfortunate demands that have been placed on our generations. And I think a lot of people lament being uh, alive in a time of civilizational collapse. And whether the collapse happens or not is ultimately up to us. We don't have to defer to institutions that are run amok. Uh, given the scale of the harm to the future, if we defer, it is absolutely incumbent upon all of us to dig deep at a time like this. And whether it's through our unions, whether it's through uh, social media pressuring journalists, whether it's through the electoral process as voters and volunteers and supporters of campaigns, we all have to step forward. It's critical for the future that we at the present don't fall asleep at the switch. So uh, so the unions seem to have the same problem as the parties. As a party leader, and if you were elected congressperson, you would be a party leader, you would push for a party policy, either on the DNC platform, or just even at the local San Francisco le level, that any challenger for an elected office has the right to call for a debate prior to an election. I don't understand why it's not part of state election law. I would be, because states drive election law ultimately, and I'd be very happy to back a party resolution to that effect. And I don't think it should be incumbent on a challenger to call for it. I think the press should be demanding it. It should be a condition of running for office, like how you get to run for office. You know, you swear an oath to defend the constitution and then nobody asks you anything about it. You know, maybe a journalist comes, shows up and asks you a hard question at a press conference, and maybe for 30 years they don't until somebody does. And so now what you're talking about is something akin to subpoena power, where we can uh, make you show up. And you can limit it. You can limit it, say, like only three times per election cycle. Sure. But what we're talking about is triggering a process which is akin to subpoena power, where, like, you don't get 
elected. You're not your name's not on the ballot unless you show up. I, I <laughs> like, like the policy, but I don't like the comparison to subpoena power because okay. subpoena power is is discretionary, whereas okay. I think this should be mandatory. Okay. You know what I mean? I don't think there should be. I don't think it should rely on somebody sending the request. I mean, if you're going to run for office, there should be debates. Period. <laughs> And, and we have a presidential debate commission set up for that at the presidential level. There's and remember, no Nancy debate. Pelosi was one of those people who said Biden shouldn't debate Trump. I recall. Because, right? you know, who needs democracy? And beyond that, I mean, she, she's one of the people who supported him as they sort of kneecapped Bernie and, you know, structurally co-opted the democratic process through this sort of, you know, backroom deal. Very reminiscent of, you know, 19th century big boss sort of like era of so-called democracy politics that were anything but democratic. Uh, and of course, these are the leaders of the party that perversely calls itself the Democratic Party. I mean, it's, it's, it's the irony is astounding. Um, so yeah, so an automatic process where part of what it is to run for office is to submit yourself to a debate. There is no discretionary, that's just part of the gig. Yes, and voters should demand nothing less. I don't yeah. understand how we can claim to live in the land of the free and the home of the brave when we haven't even demanded that basic modicum of accountability. It's it's farcical to me as an immigrant that a country that claims to lead the free world has such a tenuous relationship to it or the principle. Look, I joked and maybe it's a distasteful joke, but I'm saying I said it was it's kind of it was in a way easier to get rid of Saddam Hussein than it is to get rid of Nancy Pelosi. Like the Republicans Oof. had a plan for him. Oof. Like there's no yeah, I said it, you don't Oof. have to. Um, but like, you know, like we had a plan for him. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's no plan for Nancy. Like she's out of she's untouchable in the way that Gaddafi and Hussein aren't. Because like, like really? there's nothing we can do. There's and I the Saddam Hussein comparison is relevant because he also kept winning elections. I remember in 2000, I think 2002, he won 99% of the vote. And he can say, like Pelosi, well, I won the vote, that means I'm representative of the people. But elections like markets are manufactured, and we need to actually manage this one responsibly for it to actually be what it is an election. And part of managing it is demanding some sort of accountability, which means a debate. Either you two ask yourself, ask each other questions, or a third party um, asks you guys questions and you're honest and you respond to each other. And that's just what we need in order to make an informed decision about for our vote to be meaningful. Right? Yes. So like, if you want your vote to be meaningful, we need to know the distinctions between the candidates. Right? And like, we need the distinctions to be drawn by the opposing candidates. Like I need right. Nancy Pelosi to say, Shahid wants this and I want that. And I need you to say her record says this and I would go this way. And then I, as a voter, get to make a decision about like which distinction I want to cast my lot with. Can I don't I think press, that's irresponsible. You, you you hit a critical point there is, is the the adversarial situation in a debate people might say oh she shows up for press conferences once a week that's the same thing and it's not by a mile because <laughs> journalists are first of all ethically encouraged towards this both sides prevarication they often frankly suffer from amnesia if only because they have to cover a lot of different things so they don't develop the institutional memory of an incumbent's record the challengers do and then finally this is the same reason why we have adversarial court processes before courts because there is a difference between an adversarial exchange than one that is simply interlocutory 
and and journalists are not simply situated to do. No journalist has asked the kinds of questions that I would. I try to get journalists to show up for work all day by, I mean, I we put out seven questions to ask about congressional insider trading that aren't getting asked. Like, are they ever going to have to repay back restitution for their ill-gotten gains? Like, how are we going to restrict other examples of the conflict of interest introduced by corporate influence? Like, post the career revolving door track revolving. We before. Yeah, that's and and let's be honest for those at home who don't think debates matter remember michael bloomberg spent about 400 million dollars prior to one debate and in one debate like elizabeth warren put him down in under 30 seconds right so like if you don't think debates matter you forget how close bloomberg was absent the debate that took him out because it actually right. revealed his character in a way that like, you know, 12 years of being a mayor of New York and uh, $300 million didn't. It actually, like the process allowed the citizenry to make a decision in a way that no other process did. And so I, I want serious about, yeah. No, please, I don't interrupt you. No, if, so if you're serious about democracy, you have to be serious about the debates and you have to be serious about the candidates distinguishing themselves from each other for your benefit in order for your vote to be meaningful. And I just want people's votes to be meaningful. I don't want to be a rubber stamp for the party elites. I don't want elections to be the means through which an elite faction legitimizes its control. I actually want them to be representative of the people. And uh, and for that to happen, we need to be serious about like the institutions. Like what we have is an antitrust problem with the democratic right. problem. Yeah. I, think, I think what we have is like, it's the equivalent of like monopoly power yes. of like a certain class of elite, very wealthy Dems over everyone. And we have to figure out how to break them up like Ma Bell or whatever and and allow fair competition. So yeah, like I'm, I'm getting libertarian here. I just want fair competition. You just spoke <laughs> my academic research agenda. Before I ran for office 20 years ago, when I was in law school, the papers I was writing was about how to extend antitrust principles into novel directions. So my proposal to substantially restrict inheritance was about an antitrust theory to change the relationship of class to generation so that socioeconomic class does not become synonymous with caste. You know, with my proposal in the international trading system to restrain the WTO was driven by an international analysis of antitrust principles as they related to international trade. And I think you're absolutely right. My, my challenge to Nancy Pelosi is the closest thing we can get to antitrust enforcement against that oligarchical uh, cabal, let's say. And I want to make this sharp and you put wheels on the car. When you're describing about the need to legitimate our institutions so that our democracy and our votes are meaningful, we are basically waging a referendum against corruption. That's what, that's like the subcontext of our races and and i'm eager to establish human rights to healthcare and housing and food i'm eager to champion climate justice and go to the mat fighting for it in washington where others will mouth principles i'm eager to dismantle predatory policing and the prison industrial slavery complex and i recognize that the corporate structural corruption of congress constrains any of that from happening and it is embodied in a particular figure in congress who has done all the things we have described, dumping debates, smearing her opponents, filling her pockets, ignoring the needs of her constituents in the future, and relying ultimately on the deference of the press and unions to conduct this ruse. And, and, and let's I'm, be honest, she's one of these people, she's vindictive, like the Clintons. Like she, the press worries about their access because she will cut them off if they press her right like okay. so the journalist who actually asked her the question on 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 congressional trading he's probably not going to get called on again like he he has to worry about a real penalty 
right? So that, and members of Congress, she turned screws on them too. I mean, remember AOC comes to Congress with the protest in her office, who's not on the Energy and Commerce Committee who really wanted to be where she could be developing the Green New Deal, AOC, right? And like, you see this, this very vindictiveness. And, and I fear, to be honest, that some of our movement's voices in Washington are learning the wrong lessons from Pelosi, like how to put performance before governance. And when I see members of Congress who are uniquely situated to cast votes on policy, abdicating their, their, the imperative to cast votes on policy consistent with their rhetoric and instead resorting to cultural things like memes to make their points when they have votes, you know, meme is easy. Clapping after a speech or tearing it up, putting on your shade sternly, pointing across the table, that's all easy. And it's theatrical, it's meaningless. All the things that Pelosi gets credit for, you know, these viral moments of resisting Trump, it was all fabricated and constructed and theatrical. When, when the pen is on the paper and the policy is getting constructed, that's where you see where somebody stands. And I do think that the tendency towards some of the you know, newest progressives in Congress towards cultural resistance while not necessarily casting the votes we would expect, I, that is very Pelosi-esque. And, and I fear not only that she is vindictive absolutely towards them, and she, in, in the context of her vindictiveness, if that's the stick, I think the carrot of, hey, do it this way, pull the wool over the eyes of your constituents by putting theater before governance, that's the, that's the carrot. And so we see in her mode of silencing a progressive critique viciously, and subtly a, I fear, subversion of the movement that is co-opting even some of our voices in Washington. So one of the reasons I want to get her out of there, because I see, I see our potential role in Washington as a multiplying, a force multiplier, if only because Pelosi is such a tremendous dampening force on any progressive movement in the House. So I, you know, people say, well, you know, you have to elect Pelosi because she knows how to get things done in the House. And and I, you know, I have a similar critique of Obama. And so far as if you're a minority congressperson, if you don't have the power to pass your policies as you should, your second best thing you could do is clarify the, the fight for the people. Yes. Your job is to clarify. If you can't pass a federal job guarantee, if you can't pass like all like health care, your job is to clarify the fight for the people. And so we will help. We as in like the American people will help get the people who will then help you pass the policy. This so is the if relationship you're not, between policy and politics. Yes, right, right. Absolutely. So if you're not passing the policy, you need to clarify the fight. The problem is some people get very wealthy confusing the fight. Their job yes. is to confuse the fight. They want you to think it's about kente cloth and tearing up speeches <laughs> and all these other things. And they get you confusing the fight. Like, for example, I was watching this video of this guy defending Marco Rubio's bill about like, okay, so we need an ex officio worker on corporate boards with non-voting. We don't need to worry about like um, aggressive unions, independent unions. We need more cooperation by having just like an elected member of like a yellow union um, see, on the board who's non-voting. Non That's one of Marco Rubio's uh, bills right now. And he's like, well, that will increase worker power. And I'm thinking, no, it actually won't because you have a non-voting member of like, right. that's that's not an adversarial, pro that person doesn't have any real power. And you want to actually defang the process that actually gets workers power, right. which means like they're independent union. Instead, you just have like a company stooge on the board. 
So the idea is parallel. I see what you're getting at there. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. So the idea that you could actually confuse what the fight is by saying, well, something's better than nothing. Getting a worker who doesn't vote on the board is better than not having anything. Actually, no, that's confusing the fight. Can I bring this back to Pelosi and insider trading? She, this is exactly her response to the long overdue controversy. She, she, after it finally erupted and people started dragging her for it publicly, she said, okay, I'm open to a ban on congressional insider trading if there's one for judges too, which is just, it's ridiculous. It's like a bait and switch. First of all, judges except at the Supreme Court are required to recuse themselves from any case implicating their interests. And, and the fact that the Supreme Court is not is absolutely a problem. Right. Whether or not to constrain judicial conflicts of interest in congressional insider trading are completely separate questions because oh. judges aren't making policy in the first instance. And with the Supreme Court, it's not just about their stock portfolios. Judges of the Supreme Court are in, accountable to no one in any way. So like, if we're going to deal with that, let's deal with that meaningfully. It's not just about trading, right? For, for right. Members of Congress, trading is the thing. And, and we should address it. And trying to tie those two things together is is just an attempt at trying to slow down a fast moving wagon by like tying it to an anchor. That's her strategy, is to confuse the public and muddy the water. And it's disinformation. We are talking about str the strategic use of policy to confuse. And this is not, this is kind of like congressional insider trading in no way new. This is how Democrats have been governing for generations. It's why we're in this mess. It's why we have half a million Americans sleeping outside every night. It's why we have medical bankruptcies across the United States driving people into homelessness. It's why we have this degree of hopelessness confronting a future that is, you know, poisoned water and air. Because we have seen this pattern of, of people putting their careers before policy and communities and, and waging this disinformation struggle to hide the ball. And yeah, I, the reason I'm running for office ultimately is I pay too much attention and I've seen 20 years a, a train wreck in slow motion and I've done everything I possibly can to stop it as a writer, as an organizer, as a nonprofit advocate, as a leader of nonprofits. And at some point you just can't keep pulling the same levers, hoping that something different is going to happen. And I recognize how bad it's going to be if we don't do something about it. And, you know, I have the blessing slash curse of being one of Nancy Pelosi's constituents. And if I'm you know, going to run for Congress and be helpful, she's the person I have to get out of the way. And I happen to recognize how particularly pivotal she is. And, and that's why I'm running. I mean, there's a million easier ways to live one's life than challenging you know, the seventh wealthiest member of Congress. I should say earlier, this is one of the points I wanted to raise before <laughs> that was, it just like fell out of my head. What's up? When you were talking about the, the portfolio performance of the insider traders in do very well. the Democrats. Pelosi is the highest performing Democrat in the chamber. What does it say when the top performing politician in their stock portfolios happens to be the one with the greatest political power? Just as a circumstantial indication of corruption, I could not imagine. The only locus of corruption that is more obvious if we were to juxtapose you know, singular data points is the fact that we are the only country in the industrialized world that denies healthcare as a human right. And we have suffered more COVID deaths than any country by far than any country in the world. Like that makes entirely too much damn sense. And similarly, you know, anyway, facts speak for themselves when correctly contrasted and observed. And, and then it's exactly the failure of journalists to contrast facts, like right. the self-serving rhetoric of politicians and their policy records that have led us into this sort of civilizational trap. And so I'm, I'm super grateful for the chance to connect with you. I love your analysis.
Good. Good. Uh, so we're gonna, I'm going to try to make this a thing in my meager way. So I'm going to need you to say the words, force the debate. Force the debate. Force, force the, the debate. debate for democracy, not for the challengers, not for even, you don't even have to be a leftist here, right? You don't have to be a progressive. You, If you're a centrist, if you're a conservative, if you're certainly, if you're a libertarian, if whatever your beliefs are, if you have any meaningful commitment to democracy, I would implore you to force a debate because only you as the voters can do it. Nobody else can. And without the debate, democracy is just a hollow shell. It's just a set of words. It's theater. Right. If you want your if you, if you want your vote to have meaning, you need to force the debate. Force the debate. Challengers should not be like begging incumbents to have a debate. Like incumbents should be scheduling <laughs> with challengers and everyone else in the media the debates because it's just a foregone conclusion that what it means to run for office is to have to, I think, at least three times before. Uh, the 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 election sit down next to your your challenger and field questions and handle your business right for the good of the people and Democracy that's that's in else. every congressional district in the United States that should just be the case and we need to change the culture here and we need to clarify it starts now like in the 11th in in California but like this should be policy no yes congressional candidate in the United States should be begging for a debate with their incumbent. And no citizen like like myself should be begging for like their incumbent to have to field questions right. in a kind of antagonistic process. Like I need my, if I want my vote to mean something, I need a debate. And if you want your like yeah, so force the debate. Right on. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's make that a thing. I I I can see a lot of organizing opportunities around this, especially with aligned uh, challengers in other districts. So let's talk offline. I think there's a lot we can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is like this is like I said, like you suggested. It's not even by it's not even partisan, right? Like there are right. there are gerrymandered Republican districts where Republican challengers are getting cut off too, and then there are centrist districts who like just people just want me, their vote to have meaning, right? So like this is something that America can get behind. Force the debate. And let's make every congressperson come up with a good reason about why they shouldn't have to debate. Tell me, as you get paid your $175,000 a year, why you shouldn't have to sit down next to the person who I might vote for. Just so that job evaluation, like you put it before. Who gets who gets a job like that without an evaluation? For 34 years, no less, right? I mean, it's, it's critical. And, and I... Yeah, I, I want to draw this little lens back if I can to journalists and unions because yeah, you know voters can demand it, but journalists and unions have power here, and and rank, rank and file union members have power within unions. So if you're if you're frustrated by this dynamic that we're describing, don't feel powerless because we are describing a historical set of affairs that we can change. We can change. Forced to debate can be a thing. This can be a thing. This isn't this isn't bigger. The the issue makes too much sense. This it, you ask enough people why they shouldn't have to debate challengers. Oh, my kids are home. <laughs> All right, my kids are going home. I'm going to have to help them with their homework, which is one of my favorite things. And thank you for your time. Uh, I'm going to go. Uh, and we will sort this out. The people at home, force the debate. Ask your people. Ask your people. This is the issue we can get behind. Peace, Remy. Thanks for having.